you have your Bible or your scripture sheet, which we did send out to you, take a look at Psalm 51 with me. We're going to conclude our series of messages from this wonderful Psalm of David, a Psalm of repentance. And our study today is going to be a little briefer than most, but it is so very critical as it takes us to the heart of our religion. And as I often say, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. If you're unfamiliar with this psalm, let me set the context for us briefly. David, as king, has abused his power by taking to himself another man's wife and then arranging for her husband to be killed in the context of battle. For months he has sought to hide his sin, but when confronted by a prophet whose name was Nathan, David breaks down and repents. And this psalm, this 51st psalm, is the statement of his repentance and it is a roadmap to recovery for anyone who has been taken captive by their own lust. Follow again as I read just two verses today, verse 16 of Psalm 51, which says, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. There is something held up in these verses as a quality of enormous value and worth. It's not one of those things you're going to likely hear about from your football coach or your self-esteem counselor. There's nothing about it really that is attractive to the unbeliever. It only finds its worth in a world ruled by the God of Scripture. But what we discover in the Bible is that favor with the Almighty and thus a life of true joy and satisfaction is only given to the man or the woman who has a broken spirit or a broken heart. Now that's so very counterintuitive for us. It's, it's one of those paradoxes of Scripture, but it is repeated in many places in the Word of God. Psalm 34, 8, for example, says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The amazing implication is that the most powerful and the happiest people on the planet are the brokenhearted and the spirit crushed. Isaiah says the same kind of thing. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I will dwell on high, and I will dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 66, 2, To this one, God says, I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Notice what that last verse says to us. It answers the question of how you get the attention of God. That's a very big question. You read the different answers people have to that throughout the Bible. Remember the prophets of Baal who thought that they could get God's attention or at least their God's attention by cutting themselves and howling and Elijah mocked them for their nonsense. That kind of thing is a mark of paganism. The idea that the ultimate powers respond to our self-flagellation. They sort of said, hey, Molech, look at the virgins and the children and the oxen that I have burned in the fire for you. It's also a notion that has infiltrated, influenced, and polluted the worship of the true and living God from the very beginning. The prophets of the Old Testament repeatedly spoke to Israel on this very subject, warning them, not to think that their sacrifices to God in themselves were the key to a right relationship with Him. David repeats that in his psalm of repentance. He confesses that God is looking for something 
other than sacrifice. That to get God's attention, to get His power moving on your behalf, to fall under His favor, you must offer to Him not a lamb, not a goat, not a pigeon, but a heart that is broken and contrite. The language of David, a broken and contrite heart of God, you will not despise. And that word despise means to look down upon, to think little of. David's expression here is in the negative form, and if we made it positive, what it would say is a broken and contrite spirit carries weight with God. This is the psalmist's answer to how you get God's attention. You don't wave in front of Him some oxen you're about to slaughter. You don't show Him your offering check with the big numbers on it. You don't give Him your fasting schedule for the week. You show Him your broken heart, maybe joined with heartfelt tears. That is what gets the attention of God. Now you'll find that different people are motivated to act in response to differing stimuli. As a pastor, I, I uh, sometimes announce certain needs to our congregation, and I realize some people will never respond. Most, however, will if I announce the right need that fits their passions and their resources. If you're uh, walking to your car today and discover that someone can't get their car started and you have mechanical abilities, you're likely to jump right in and check out the situation. When someone has a seizure in public, if you're a doctor, you step forward and identify yourself and you sort of take charge. And my point is that we respond to the needs that we are prepared to meet. If I'm in a doctor's office and somebody says, boy, I wish I knew what this Bible verse meant, <laughs> I would feel compelled to offer myself to them to assist them in understanding the scriptures. I can't do much about your car problems or your health problems, but I am trained to help with your theological problems. That's the kind of need that I'm likely to respond to. But what about God? What about God? God, we're told, is a healer of many things, but especially He is a healer of hearts. And when He sees a broken heart, our God is sort of compelled by His own merciful nature to respond. Isaiah 66, 2 again, To this one I will look, to him who's humble and contrite of heart. That, that contrition, that brokenness gets the Lord's attention. It holds weight in heaven. A broken and a contrite heart, says David, he will not, indeed he cannot, despise. Sacrifices, well, God can despise those. Jesus, in fact, says he does. The prophets of the Old Testament say he does. Listen to this from Isaiah 1, verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, goats, and lambs. Bring your worthless offerings to me no longer. Well, what were they bringing to God? They were bringing rams and cattle and goats. Nothing wrong with that stuff. But the sacrifice that God was looking for is the one that David tells us about when he says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. So let me take a few minutes here to compare and contrast the sacrifice that Israel was offering, the sacrifice of things, with the sacrifice of brokenness and contrition. God's Word says that brokenness is so much better, and here's why. Number one, contrition is the substance of true devotion. Not the form, it's the substance, not the form. Understand that when God gets angry about the sacrifices he mentions there in Isaiah chapter 1. It's not because he doesn't care for sacrifice. God commanded that in the Old Testament. But he commanded worship by sacrifice as an expression of what should be going on in the human heart. 
Sacrifices are great when they express a worshiping heart, but when they are simply another religious duty that you think may win points with the Almighty, they become an abomination. There's a system in the Roman Church known as penance. The Roman Catholic Catechism teaches eternal punishment is canceled by either baptism or confession to a priest. But confessing isn't enough. Upon confessing, the priest is to give the sinner an assignment by which he may work his way back into the grace of God. This is what is called penance. The Council of Trent says that penance is the second plank of justification for those who have made shipwreck of their souls. The Baltimore Catechism of the Catholic Church defines penance in this way. Penance is the sacrament by which sins committed after baptism are forgiven through the absolution of the priest. Not forgiveness by grace through the merits of Jesus, but forgiveness by works through the pronouncements of human priests. The acts of penance usually include things like praying the rosary, the giving of alms, the saying of some Our Fathers, and such as this. These are called works of satisfaction. Now, does that seem consistent with the gospel of grace? What does God ask of us when we do sin? Do we have to work it off, make up our bad deeds with some good deeds of certain type? Is, is that how it all works? Oh no, my friend. Oh no. Come to the gospel of Jesus and be free. In Psalm 51, after David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba, the man of God repents. He confesses his sin before God, not some human being, and he says there in verse 16 of our passage, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. There David eschews the idea of penance, and he affirms the idea of repentance, which is an operation of God in man's soul, bringing him to a place of brokenness and contrition, the substance of true devotion, not the form of it. The repeating of meaningless prayers. God actually says he hates, but when he sees a broken and contrite heart, our God forgives and he heals. The second reason that contrition is better than sacrifice is that it is internal as opposed to external. Internal as opposed to external. One of the great religious delusions ever foisted upon mankind by the enemy of our souls is that which we can call externalism. Externalism, which has its Catholic forms and its Protestant forms, is religion that focuses on the outer to the neglect of the inner. Jesus spoke to the externalist of his day, the Pharisees, in scathing terms. Listen to what he said in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Like so many religious persons, they had lost perspective. They were into external purity. But what mattered was to keep, was, uh, was to keep your distance, I mean, for their, in their perspective, what mattered was to keep your distance from sinners, keep your distance from unclean foods, unwashed hands. What mattered was to perform the commanded rituals of the law. Jesus shattered their deception. In Christ's day, the lepers were required, whenever they came near to other folks, to 
shout out, unclean, unclean. Sometimes we feel like when we put on our masks, we're kind of announcing to the world. So folks would know how to just stay away from the leper. That was the idea. But Jesus touched the leper and taught that what defiles a man. It's not outward, but it's inward. God told Samuel, men look at the heart. Or men, I'm sorry, men look at the outside, but God looks at the heart. Men look at the outside, God looks at the inside. The heart of the matter, again, is the matter of the heart. The outer deeds, they don't impress God. The words spoken, they don't impress God. He despises words that are not sincere. Jesus offered to Israel the complaint of God when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, you can go to church, you can say the creed, you can sing the hymns, you can look to the eye of man to be quite the Christian, but God knows the truth, God knows your heart. You can even please the pastor with sheer externalism, if you're good at it, but it gets you nowhere with the Father in heaven. Understand the externals of our devotion are great, they are fine. Psalm 51 ends by saying the Lord will delight in righteous sacrifices. They are appreciated by the Lord when they are joined with a heart attitude that is right. And sometimes they are. But a broken spirit, God will never, ever despise. The third reason we prefer a broken spirit to conventional sacrifice is because it is relational instead of transactional. Relational instead of transactional, or you could say contractual. Let me explain. A transaction is a negotiated, planned-out interaction. It is understood that if party A does X, Y, and Z, that party B will do Q, R, and S. It is a calculated benefits and analysis system. And if done rightly, it doesn't involve a lot of risk. Relationships, on the other hand, involve risk. When I married Beth Proctor, I entered a relationship that was unpredictable. I didn't know what loving her was going to mean. In the same way, when we come to Christ, we don't know exactly what He is going to ask of us. When an army that has been beaten and battered and cornered and knows it cannot compete, what it does is this thing we call surrender. And most surrenders throughout history are unconditional. The, surrendered, uh, the surrounded, outmanned army, they're in no position to make demands. They simply offer their surrender, uh, conditions to be set by the victors and the surrendering side doesn't know what those conditions might be. Becoming a Christian, it's an unconditional surrender. We are sinners in great need. We have no grounds to make any demands or set terms with our sovereign. We say, Lord, I am yours, without knowing the specifics of what exactly that will mean. Now, that may sound rather desperate, but brokenness takes us to that point. I have a cartoon that shows a wealthy-looking woman sitting in her pastor's office and she expresses herself this way. She says, Pastor, I'm not very good at repentance. How about if I just offer you my condo on the beach for three weeks a year and God and I will call it even? Well, that's sacrifice, I guess, but no repentance there. No brokenness, no risky, whatever you say, Lord, relationship. And many choose that kind of religion, the way of calculated sacrifice over brokenness because, well, it's safer and you at least feel far more in control. But David says, it is the way to hell. The way of life is coming to understand that brokenness is what God is after. The way of life is found in the way of contrition and brokenheartedness over your sin before God. 
It says, I am nothing, I have nothing, I can do nothing. Brokenness looks up to the Lord and says, I come to you for healing, and in my brokenness, I embrace your rule, your mastery, your dominion in my life. There are times when, as a pastor, I feel somewhat uncomfortable, sometimes very uncomfortable with how much influence some people are willing to give me in their lives. Most, frankly, are open to very little of my influence, but a few have come leaving difficult situations sort of entirely in my hands, and I, and I definitely feel the pressure at that point. It makes me wonder what surgeons must feel like on a regular basis. I mean, have you ever thought about what we do when we submit to major surgery? We say to another human, a fellow flawed human, go ahead, slice me open, fiddle around with the most essential parts of my internal anatomy while I remain totally unconscious. How do we reach a point of willingness to do that kind of thing? Well, brokenness of a sort. We come to grips with our great need and our total incapacity to help ourselves. When you reach that point in your dealings with God, then, my friend, you are on the verge of healing. For the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Does that describe you today? Are you fed up with your sin, with your pride? You're tired of leaning on your own strength and on your own goodness? Are you ready to say, Lord, I am needy and I cannot help myself. My heart now is yours to do with as you please. Are you broken this day? Then welcome to the community of the broken. If you're not broken, if you can, can still feel your pride and your self-dependence rearing its ugly head, then could you be willing to be broken? Are you willing? Have you seen the value of a contrite heart? If so, then be honest with God. Admit your hardness. Admit your pride. And say to the Lord, give me now that brokenness that leads to life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercies and your goodness to us to lead David, to give his testimony, to share what he experienced and learned through this terrible sin followed by a terrible and wonderful repentance. Father, we pray that you would lead us in the same way to a place of deep contrition, that we would not only see and identify our sin, but we would feel it very deeply as what it is, a rebellion against you, cosmic treason, and a betrayal of our love relationship with our God and our King. Lord, grace us with this repentance and then come in by the mercy of Jesus, which is more than all of our sin and fill us up anew to walk with a pure conscience and a pure heart and with a pure relationship with you, our merciful Father in heaven. And for these graces we call on you in the great name of Jesus, who died that we might be forgiven. Amen.